This is the Foreign Affairs Inbox, a podcast providing analysis of critical global issues by the Elliott School of International Affairs here at George Washington University. And I'm your host, Koji Flindow. We're joined today by Professor Mark Lynch. He's a professor of political science and international affairs here at the Elliott School, where he also directs the Project on Middle East Political Science. He's the author of The New Arab Wars, Uprisings, and Anarchy in the Middle East. Very happy to have you today on the show, so welcome. Hey, thanks for having me here. To kick us off, you couch the Arab Spring as part of a sort of broad set of what you call Arab uprisings, but we want to hone in a little bit on the spring today. So if you could just characterize what the region sort of looks like on the eve of the Arab Spring breaking out. Well, if you go back to, say, 2009, 2010, uh, there was a general sense around the region that things were pretty stagnant and there were autocratic regimes all over the region and they seemed like they were pretty much in control. Uh, you had you know, protests here and there. You definitely had a sense of this rising generation of young activists and bloggers and social media, you know, kind of pushing the boundaries and that sort of thing. But nobody really believed that change was possible in any, in any meaningful way. And so I think the reason that uh, 2011, the Arab uprisings, came as such a shock is that people had kind of internalized the notion that change was impossible. And all of a sudden, everything seemed possible. And that's why January 2011, I think, was so revolutionary, not just revolutionary in the sense of overthrowing a couple of governments, but revolutionary in people's psychology, in people's thinking about how you know, change was possible now. And that was something which had been kind of beaten out of everybody's heads over the course of the last two decades. Right. And so you've outlined sort of a set of social, political, economic grievances, and also said that it's been beaten into people's heads that this sort of revolution would be impossible. So then the obvious question is, why then? And, and how did that happen? How did Mohamed Bouazizi uh, self-immolating in Tunisia, how did that kick off the Arab Spring and why did it spread? Like you said, there was an enormous amount of grievance that was out there, and everybody could see that part of it. You looked at places like Egypt or Tunisia. You had this enormous inequality, failed governance, a lot of corruption. Social media, one of the things that it did very effectively was it actually brought a lot of this corruption out into the spotlight. People saw it in public, and even if everybody pretty much knew about it, having it right out there on your computer screen meant you couldn't pretend anymore that it wasn't there. So everybody saw that there were these building grievances bubbling up from below. But again, people didn't feel like change was really possible. So the Boazizi setting himself on fire and sparking protests in Tunisia, that is essentially random. Mm. I mean, the, there's nothing that causes that. That's but a general set of factors that were generating unrest. A few things happened in Tunisia right around then. There were some activists, many of them actually based in France, who were able to use the internet to break the information blockade and spread the news about what was going on. Local activists took this and ran with it. And 
it ended up spreading so quickly that the regime security forces, which usually would have just taken a protest like this, put a you know a cordon around the town and shut the thing down, they were just overwhelmed. They just couldn't catch up in time. By the time they figured out what was going on, there were already hundreds of thousands of protesters in the streets of the capital city. And they were very much playing catch up from that point on. Most people around the region at first, they were kind of looking at this as an oddity. This was something which was about Tunisia. It was not a general story about the Arab world and all the governments wanted to encourage that interpretation, that it's just that Tunisia is weird and if something happens there, it doesn't really matter. But the images that were coming out of um, out of Tunisia in mid January were really revolutionary. These were hundreds of thousands, even millions of people in the streets peacefully protesting, and the army didn't gun them down, didn't shoot them, and then the president ran away and he fled to Saudi Arabia, and suddenly you had victory. I mean, the Arab people haven't had a victory in a very long time, and that's when. Everyone around the region kind of looked at this and said, well, they can do it. Why can't we? And you could follow this happening on social media, Facebook groups, uh, private listservs. If you were living there at the time, you would hear people talking about it in the cafes. There was this long but fast process of people recalibrating what was what was possible. And you saw protests starting to break out all over the region, um, in Jordan, in Yemen, in Morocco. You saw it starting to spread, but Egypt is what pushed it over the top. The January 25th revolution in Egypt was clearly inspired by Tunisia. There would have been a protest anyway, but it would have been the same 10,000 activists who always protested. But after Tunisia, you got a million people instead of 10,000 people. And it simply overwhelmed the army. It overwhelmed the police. And again, it set in motion this 18 days of the occupation of Tahrir Square, which resulted in Mubarak stepping down. And Egypt, for all of its problems, and Egypt has many problems, but Egypt is still the center of the Arab world. And something happening in Tunisia is one thing. Mm. But happening in Egypt, this really radically transformed everything. One thing I want to sort of pull out from there is about the role of social media. Uh, You mentioned that it sort of led to this increased functional transparency, wherein everyone could see at least what was on social media and the corruption and the misdeeds of their government. So one thing I want to ask more about then is about how social media informed networks of activists across the Arab world and how those protests in Tunisia mutually informed those protests in Egypt, which mutually informed those protests in Syria and the way that social media had something to do with that. So you have to be careful with this because social media was really important, but it was only one part of a broader environment. Where social media was really important was in those networks of activists, in these small groups of dedicated people who used it to organize, to communicate, to encourage each other. And so I've I've done a lot of research on this where you can actually see that this activist network in places like Egypt or Yemen, they were following really closely what was happening in Tunisia. And then they adopted many of the slogans and the models. Say, let's try that. But that's among a small group of activists. What really brought it out to the broader public was uh, was TV, especially Al Jazeera, the Arabic TV station out of Qatar, because social media usage back in 2011 was relatively limited still to kind of small groups of urban youth, and everybody watches TV. When it comes to a crisis, 
everybody watches Al Jazeera. It's not quite as true today as it used to be, but back then it was very much the case. Something is happening. Everyone switches from whatever TV station they usually watch. They turn on Al Jazeera. And Al Jazeera basically went to 24-7 Arab Spring coverage. And so that meant that ordinary people were suddenly seeing this happening. And it wasn't just the people on Twitter or Facebook, although they were playing a key role in organizing and coming up with slogans, where the protests were going to happen, what they were going to demand. So social media was hugely important for the activists. But Mm -hmm. TV was what really kind of brought it to the next level. Mm. And that duality seems very important to how the protests and uprisings actually played out and the kinds of protests that we saw challenging regimes and governments. So the next thing I want to ask you about then is what accounts for the kinds of transitions or lack thereof that we saw as a consequence of the Arab Spring? Also, one of the things that made the Arab uprisings so powerful is that they brought together these huge cross-class coalitions. You know, so it was one thing when you had you know, 10,000 activists who could basically agree on things. But when you get a few million people, they don't agree on what kind of economic system to have, who they would vote for in an election. They tended to converge on very simple common objectives – And that was the overthrow of the regime. So basically everybody in Tahrir Square wanted to see Hosni Mubarak out of office. They wanted to see the president gone. But they didn't agree on what came next. Same thing in Tunisia, same thing in Libya, same thing in Syria, same thing in Yemen. You could get this unity around a very simple demand. The president must go. The regime must fall. But once that happened – then everybody turns on everybody else because now they're competing for power. Now they have different visions. And so the energy and the passion that you get from the social media and, and television-fueled protest movements is enormously powerful, right? I mean it can just overwhelm security forces. People get caught up in the moment. But then next morning – someone's got to govern the country. You have to write a new constitution. You have to form political parties. You have to keep the economy running. And I think that the transition from protest to governance really overwhelmed uh, almost every country. Tunisia did the best, but even Tunisia has really struggled. And Tunisia basically succeeded by agreeing on basically a consensus national unity government between the two major parties, which makes sure that the thing doesn't fall apart. It's been extraordinarily important that they kind of basically all agree on this national unity government. Neither one tries to destroy the other. But the price of that is that no tough decisions ever get made. Nothing ever gets done because it's a national unity government. And that failure to transition, I want to sort of draw out a little bit more with a case example of Egypt. And if you could talk through how that dynamic of shared opposition, but not really a shared vision going forward, played itself out in Egypt specifically. So – When Hosni Mubarak stepped down in February 11th, you end up with this real dichotomy emerging. So most of the people who came out to protest, they went home. They wanted Mubarak gone and he was gone. The activists were very worried that the military was just going to continue as things were and they wanted to stay in the streets. The military did take over. They formed the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces and for about a year, they governed uh, through through diktat. But they felt insecure. So every time the people would come back out into the streets, 
They would get nervous. Sometimes they would make concessions. Sometimes they would start repressing and start shooting people. So it was a very tense, unstable situation. It comes to a head at the end of the year of 2011 when there's some really violent clashes in central Cairo between the protesters and the army. And at that point, the SCAF with American prodding agrees to go ahead and hold elections. And at that point, you see a shift from the kind of protest dynamic into the election dynamic. But the elections then really go against what a lot of people who drove the revolution had expected because the Muslim Brotherhood was a very well-organized movement. They were extremely well-positioned to contest elections. Even more religious parties were out there who had a big popular base and were able to win a lot of votes. The activists, the liberals, people from the old elite, they couldn't get their act together that quickly. Either they didn't have a large social base or they didn't know how to organize for elections. And the results of the of the parliamentary elections were just crushing. The Islamist forces of various kinds dominated the new parliament and the revolutionary forces were almost completely shut out. That then goes forward. You have presidential elections, which then happen about six months later. And there you get the worst of all possible outcomes. There's a couple of quite popular revolutionary candidates and they split the vote. None of them would step down and they all competed with each other and they all split the vote. And you ended up with two candidates. One of them was from the Muslim Brotherhood. One of them was from Mubarak's old regime. And they then – left Egyptians with a choice between the Brotherhood and the old regime that they had just overthrown a year earlier. The Brotherhood won and Morsi became president, but he wasn't accepted as legitimate by many of the forces who – both the revolutionary forces but also the old regime forces. From the time he took office, he was facing kind of very dedicated resistance from the state, from the military and from the popular forces. He wasn't able to get anything done. He scared the heck out of people by doing Islamist things. He made some pretty bad choices and all of it ended up in another – another military coup in July of uh, 2013. And with that military coup, you then had the worst, most repressive crackdown on the Muslim Brotherhood in Egyptian history, just a really sweeping crackdown, uh, just trying to crush the organization, tens of thousands of political prisoners, this massacre in the streets in August with a thousand people killed in broad daylight. It was really, really nasty. And it wasn't limited to the Islamists. Anybody who protested, including the same activists who had cheered for the coup, they found themselves going to prison too. They found themselves suffering the same kind of repression that the Brotherhood was facing. And the result is that Egypt now is far worse than it was before the revolution. It's more repressive. The economy is worse. Governance is worse. The military is in total control of politics and the economy. And so a lot of people involved in the revolution kind of find themselves saying, what did we do this for? Mm. And so you end up, as you described with the case of Egypt, with largely more autocratic regimes and uh, more dictatorial regimes in some cases, with the partial exception, of course, of Tunisia. And so now I'd like to zoom back out and talk a little bit about what the region today looks like when you have this failure of transition and new regimes coming into power. There's another step along the way, mm-hmm. which is that after the Egyptian revolution succeeded – 
But before everything went wrong, you saw this wave of inspiration going around the entire region. And it very quickly led to very different types of outcomes. So in Libya, the uprising against Gaddafi very quickly gives way to a civil war, which then attracts international intervention by NATO and the United States. Yemen, the protests take a really dark turn when the military divides and it turns into an armed conflict between the competing factions. And then in Syria, popular protests lead to really fierce, violent repression by the Assad regime, which quickly escalates towards a civil war. And then increasingly a, a civil war which brings in combatants on all sides, everything from American support for the Free Syrian Army to ISIS to uh, Russia and Iran, you know, basically turning Syria into an international battlefield. And this was something which nobody expected, I think, when they started the uprisings. They were trying to get rid of unpopular regimes. They wanted to bring about democracy. They wanted more social justice, less corruption. But in those three cases, the states just collapsed under the pressure. They resorted to violence instead of concessions and things just went really horribly wrong. And so what ends up shaping the region to the way it looks today is the combination of the failure of the democratic transitions combined with these horrifying civil wars. And so when people around the region look at the Arab Spring today, what they see is failed hopes and all kinds of cautionary examples of what could happen. And Syria is truly one of the worst humanitarian catastrophes in modern history. Yemen is pretty close behind. Libya is just a failed state with very little prospect of being put back together. And so what the region is shaped by then is this combination of failed hope combined with all of these horrible examples of state failure and war. And that's a fairly bleak picture, which brings us to the last question that I want to ask, which is about counterfactuals. Could this, in your view, have been averted? Is there some step along the way or multiple steps at which some change in the course of events could have resulted in an entirely different outcome rather than the one that we see today? Yeah, I mean, the structural forces leading towards disaster were pretty strong, and it was never going to be easy. But there were some moments where things could have gone differently. And I think one of the most important moments was the military coup in Egypt in 2013. I think that had Egyptians been willing to stick to the Constitution and continue to play the democratic game, the Muslim Brotherhood's unpopularity would have been exposed in the next round of elections and you would have almost certainly, in my view, seen a process by which the Brotherhood lost control of parliament and then in a few years later, Morsi voted out of office and then you would have had something which would have been a really important example for the Middle East and for the world of an Islamist government failing in power and then peacefully stepping down when they lost elections. Instead, you get the military coup, which basically validates every radical Islamist complaint about how democracy is a fraud, how they'll never be allowed to truly be democratic. And it's taken Egypt and the region down a very dark path. The other big counterfactuals, I think, have to do with those shattered war zones 
I think that there's a huge debate that goes on over Syria and U.S. policy towards Syria. And uh, I tend to be in a different place than most people on those debates. I think the standard argument you'll hear in the United States is that Syria's disaster was caused by Obama's uh, failure to intervene, that he didn't support the Free Syrian Army enough. And then in August of 2013, he uh, didn't bomb Syria in response to its use of chemical weapons. And the general argument is that if Obama had done more, then Syria would have been better. I think that's wrong. I think it's badly wrong. I think that the way Syria was structured, a counter-intervention by Russia was inevitable. Russia was never going to allow Assad to be overthrown. And more American support to the opposition earlier would have just brought Russia in earlier and would have made very little difference in the outcome. What would have made a difference is if the United States had been able to restrain the militarization of the revolution and not supported the flow of arms to the opposition because that flow of weapons to the opposition fundamentally transformed the nature of the Syrian uprising. It turned it from a peaceful democratic uprising, which is how it began, into an armed insurgency. And once it was an armed insurgency, there was very little hope. They were never going to be able to win and Assad's response was inevitably going to be brutal and bloody. And then it set in motion this spiral with all of the devastating effects that we saw. I think that if you had not seen the militarization of the Syrian uprising and if you hadn't seen the Egyptian military coup, then uh, the Middle East would look a lot better today. Well, thank you so much. You've been listening to the Foreign Affairs Inbox from the Elliott School of International Affairs. If you liked what you listened to today, make sure to hit subscribe, rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend. Our show is produced by Dave Haft. Our editor is Christina Wan, and thanks to the public affairs team, Robin Kahn and Colette Kent, for their collaboration.